this is Pastor Daryl Beggs. You're listening to Sunday Morning Sermons from Central Baptist Church in Hillsboro, Texas. Thanks for joining us, and God bless you. We're going to look at Luke chapter 5, Luke's Gospel chapter 5. And I'm starting a new series this morning entitled, How Much? The Cost of Discipleship According to the Gospel of Luke. I'm looking forward to this, and because I'm looking forward to it for my own sake, I, I need to be challenged always about being a follower of Jesus. You know, if you stand up here and tell somebody they ought to follow Jesus, then it's probably a good thing for you to try to do that too, right? So I want to I wanna do my best to uh, figure out what this means, what Jesus desires for me, for us as disciples, as followers of Jesus. And today's message is entitled, Making a Great Trade. It's in Luke chapter 5. How much? How much? How many of you ever ask, how much? How much is that? You ever ask that? All of us do. You ever compare prices? Any of you ever compare prices? Easy to do these days. You just look online. You can get the price of everything. It's just amazing. Recently, I traded cars. Do y'all love shopping for cars? You do. I know you do. I shouldn't ask that question. I hate shopping for a car. I hate it. I hate it. You know why? Because you got to go play the game. You got to go play the game. You got to, oh, let me get this off my chest. Y'all mind? I hate it. I had to go to a dealer and meet somebody I'd never met before. I didn't know him from Adam. I didn't know if I could trust him if he was crooked as a dog's hind leg. I didn't know. I went to three different ones. I hadn't had to do this in 20 years. Now, it's not that we had cars that were 20 years old. It's just that in the last 20 years, I've had two men who I could trust that I just went and said I needed a car and how much will that one cost me? And they would give me the bottom line. We made the deal. I went to the bank. It was over with. That was it. Not anymore. Those two guys are out of the car business and I hate them. So now I had to go and meet people that I didn't know and I didn't know if I could trust them. And I... I was at three different dealerships, and you know how that works. you got to go talk to them. You, you might as well just put aside a whole day, and, and then you got to try to negotiate and figure out whether they're trying to rip you off and how much stuff they want to try to sell you and that you don't need. And, and then they got to go talk to somebody else, and then they got to come back. And then before you leave, if you say no, they got to go get the other guy to come out and double-team you to try to get you, you know, to, to try to work on you to... Make sure you don't leave because if you leave today, the car may not be here tomorrow. And I'm always thinking, don't you know they're making more like those cars? But it's, it's, it's really a pain. I, I just, I hate it. I, really, I mean, I just really do. I hate doing that. But I finally did buy a car. I went to one dealer where I actually bought the car. Now that I think about it, I might have made a bad decision. Anyway... They had the car that we were looking at that I kind of wanted to get, and uh, they had it advertised for this wonderful price. You know, it was a certified car, which means it, means it was guaranteed for a long time. And uh, I got up there, and the guy said, oh, by the way, for the certification, we have to add our extra $995. I said, well, it would have been nice if you would have put that in the ad before I drove up here from Hillsborough, and he just hung his head and said, I'm so sorry, I have to do that to people all the time. And I'm thinking, turn around and I will kick you, but I didn't do that. 
But I finally, I, I prayerfully was able to get a car for my beloved. I'll probably drive mine forever. That's fine. I don't have to go deal with another car dealer. But, but it's a game. It turns into a game, and it's just such a pain. And so I'm glad when it comes to Jesus, he doesn't play games. He doesn't play games about what is it going to cost for us to follow him and be what he wants us to be. He just he will give you the bottom line. And he doesn't have to go talk to his manager. He is the manager. And so he makes it pretty clear. And he always owns up to his end of the deal. You can trust him. So I want you to look with me in Luke chapter 5 and verse 1. I feel so much better now. Luke 5 and verse 1. Now it happened that while the crowd was pressing around him and listening to the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake, but the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. And he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little way from the land. And he sat down and began teaching the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing. But I will do as you say and let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a great quantity of fish and their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat for them to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw that, he fell down at Jesus' feet saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For amazement had seized him and all his companions because of the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not fear. From now on you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Today's passage is about a great trade. They made a great trade that day. They, they traded boats and nets for eternal significance. What a day. What a glorious day it was for them. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. It, it all started with a need. And the need was people who were hungry. Not hungry just for the miracles, but hungry to hear from God. They had a hunger for God's Word. The Bible says in verse 1 that the crowd was pressing around Jesus because they were listening to the Word of God. And Jesus had been so very busy, they, but, but they were crowding in on Him. They were hanging on His every word because they knew it was God's Word. Now, let's go back and look a little bit at what's been going on before this. He was in Capernaum, and there He was teaching. And they were amazed at His teaching. The Scripture says that His message was with authority. They'd never heard anybody teach or speak the way He had. So they were hanging on His every word. He'd also been casting out demons. Demons who said... Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demons knew who He was. They knew that He was the Holy Son of God. The demons were one up on a lot of people. They knew Jesus and had reverence for Him. They knew who He was, and He kept telling them to be quiet and casting them out. But He had control over them. The people were amazed. And 
the word kept spreading all around. The next stop was Simon's home, Simon Peter. His mother-in-law was sick in the bed with a fever, and they asked him if he could help. And he came in, and he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And the Bible says she got up and began waiting on them. She was a person who liked to serve, and she was in that bed. She couldn't do it. She was more than happy that Jesus came by that day. Well, that wasn't the end of the day. After he left Simon's house and took care of his mother-in-law, he spent the rest of the evening and in late into the night healing and casting out demons. And the demons continued to proclaim, you are the Son of God. You are the Son of God over and over and over again. And they were hanging on these incredible words. And when morning came, he sought some time alone, but he couldn't get away. They went and they hunted him up and they begged him to stay. Wouldn't you beg him to stay after all those wonderful things he'd been doing? And so he said, no, I've got other cities, other places. I've got to go and tell other people the good news. So wherever he went, people were flocking to him because there's just no one like Jesus the Son of God, and God had invaded history, who would want to miss that? Most, if not all, of these people were poor, common people looking for hope and for healing. You know, our world is full of those kinds of people, don't you? you know, I know we're, we're living in a very prosperous world. We live in a prosperous nation. But there's a lot of people still hungry for something on the inside that they'll never find no matter what we do in this life. There's a hunger that's deeper for all of us that can only be fulfilled through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we need to have a fresh hunger to hear from the Word of God, don't we? Now, last week I talked to you about the F-260 plan. I'm not going to talk a lot about that today, but I want you to look in your bulletin today. If you don't have one, be sure and grab one. There's some of those plans on your way out, and it's a very easy plan for you to read your Bible this year and to help us to hear from God and know that He speaks to us. So I want you to pray about that and take that and use that. But secondly, what do we need to, how do we pray for our world, for our community, for America, for Texas? How do you pray for Hillsboro? One of the things that we need to pray for our own community and for people around us is that they will develop a fresh hunger for God and for the Word of God. We need that. Now, if you and I don't have a hunger for God and the Word of God, how many of you think everybody else will? They won't. They're looking for you and for me to see whether we're genuine or not. Do we love God's Word? Do we love Him? Are we really people of the book? Or do we just show up for an hour on Sunday and then we go about our merry way? That's what they want to know. So I want to encourage you to be in the Word and to pray for others. The, the greatest hunger in life... Now you just think about this with me for a minute. Think about the entertainment that you watch. Think about the materialism in our world. Think about all the things that people are trying to fulfill themselves with. Whether it's entertainment or whether it's things that they can buy, like a new car. But all these different things in life that they're trying to fulfill... And every one of those things comes up empty when it comes to the soul, the depth of who we are. And we need our nation, our country, our world, our city needs to have a fresh hunger for God and His Word. Don't you think? So let's pray for that and ask God to develop a hunger and begin in all of us. Lifeway Research uh, did a survey about people and the Bible. And here's what they said. 
This is part of what they said. Most Americans don't know firsthand the overall story of the Bible because they rarely pick it up. Even among worship attendees, less than half read the Bible daily. The only time most Americans hear from the Bible is when someone else is reading it. About half of Americans, 53%, have read relatively little of the Bible. One in 10 has read none of it, while 13% have read a few sentences. 30% say they have read several passages or stories. Now listen to this indictment, guys. Men are more likely to skip Bible reading than women. I can't believe that, can you? 39% of men say they do not read the Bible on their own compared to 31% of women. Why were these people crowding in and so interested to hear what Jesus had to say and our world seems so indifferent because they knew Jesus was speaking to them the very Word of God. If you knew that you knew that you knew that you could really hear from God, that you could have an encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, would you be more diligent about opening up His Word and opening up your heart to Him? That's why they came and they flocked to Him. It all started with this need and there was a hunger and Jesus had brought a hunger into that land and they were flocking around. It's so much so that He had to get away from them. He had to get in a boat, go out on the lake and maybe He was in a little cove and they were surrounding them and it was kind of like an amphitheater and the sound was reverberating to thousands of people. But what an incredible story this is. They were hungry to hear from Him. So as the story continues, I want you to see with me a couple of great traits. The first trade was they traded fatigue for faith. Look at, look at verse 4. When Jesus had finished speaking, He said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered and said, Master, we worked hard all night and caught nothing, but I will do as you say and let down the nets. Let's talk a little bit about fishermen and discipleship. Did you know it was possible that seven of the twelve apostles were fishermen? Why did he go pick a bunch of stinky, smelly fishermen to be his followers? He, he, he really got a ragtag bunch of people together. Fishermen, tax collectors, zealots. It was really quite a crowd. But fishermen, why fishermen? Uh, they were washing their nets, it says in verse 2. After being out all night doing back-breaking work. Can you imagine being a commercial fisherman in the first century? All night long, every night, night after night, you would go out on your boat. And this was how you made your living. And so you'd have these giant, these big nets, and you would have men, and you would throw these nets out. And then you would painstakingly pull them back in. Time after time after time through the night, you've got a torch and you're looking for some fish and you're hoping to catch something all night long. Your back is hurting. You don't have Advil. You're in trouble. And it's back-breaking work. And you come in after the night's over with, you don't even have a minnow in the bucket. He's calling a bunch of fishermen. Why does he call them? Because they were just getting ready for the next day. After all of that back-breaking work, they're washing their nets. They're getting ready to go do it again. It's a lot like something many of you do, right? You may go to work one day and your day's very productive. And the next day it's not so hot. But what are you going to do? You're going to get up and go again. But to be a fisherman, 
You had to have a special quality about your life. Think about this with me. It took courage, persistence, working together, and faith. There was just no quit in these fishermen. That's the kind of followers Jesus is looking for. You may, today, you may be thinking about, you know, things have been kind of going south. And you may think, man, I'm, I'm just ready to give up. Don't give up. You never know when God's going to send a haul. He's going to send a big catch for you. So they're, they're fishermen, but Peter was about to exercise faith in spite of his fatigue and doubts. He's sitting there with his back aching and he's tired and he's grumpy and he's sleepy, but he's about to exercise his faith and he trades this fatigue for his faith. Jesus says, put out into deep water and let down your nets for a catch. It's a ridiculous request for a worn-out fisherman, don't you think? Besides that, what does a carpenter from Nazareth know about fishing? He should leave that to the professionals, right? But Peter had seen Jesus heal. As a matter of fact, he'd even seen Jesus come into his own home and heal his mother-in-law. So he said, Lord, I fished all night long. And you can hear the undertones in that. I'm worn out. I'm ready to go to the house. But because you say so, I'll do it one more time. And oh, I know from that day forward, he was so glad that even though he was tired and worn out, he went ahead and obeyed. Because it was a life-changing day. What a day it turned out to be. So you can just imagine... Uh, <laughs> He believed in the one who cast out demons, who healed his mother-in-law. And Peter goes up, you know, he probably had to get out of the boat with his friends because the, the nets were laying out on the shore to dry. And he had to load up those half-wet nets and go back out into the sea. But because you say so, I'll do it. It's inconvenient. I'm hurting. I don't like it. But because of who you are, I'll do it he decided that he would be obedient. But the key to all of this was faith, even in spite of his fatigue and his doubt. All of us are tired sometimes, right? Sometimes we're tired all the time. All of us go through times of doubt and even fear. But it's in those times when our faith is tested that we will say, hey, I'll put one foot in front of the other. I'll trust God in the midst of my doubts and my fatigue and I'll practice just a little bit of faith. How much faith did Jesus say it would take to move a mountain? Do you remember? As small as a mustard seed. And so he exercised faith. Now, it gets even better. The last thing here is that he trades his shame for God's amazing grace. It's an incredible story. And if you get back over to verse 6, it says, when they had done this, they got all these fish. And they were getting so many fish, they had to call the other boat. And the other boat filled up with fish. Now, this is not a typical fishing excursion. I mean, they had so many boats, it's almost like Jesus had to make some extra fish. I don't know how that worked, but they got so many in those boats, the nets were breaking, the boats were about to sink. There was no doubt that this was God. If anybody ever doubts that Jesus is God, look at the fish in those boats. And it was incredible. And they come to the shore, and Peter is so humbled by this. He's so overwhelmed by this. And I think this is the crux of the whole story in verse 8. He fell down at Jesus' feet, 
And he said, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. The moment of truth, he traded, he traded that for God's amazing grace. Amazement had seized him and all his companions, the scripture says. So now he's more than just master, more than captain of the ship. He is the Lord of life. He's the Lord over nature. He is the God like the God who was in control of the locusts and the gnats and the plagues in Egypt. He is he's more than just a prophet. He is amazing. He, he is astonishing what he does. Now, why was this miracle so significant to Peter? It was significant to him. He had seen miracles before. He'd even seen it in his own house. But now it was personal. You know what? The gospel, the word of God, the message of God, the, the whole purpose of God for your life will never really mean nothing. It'll never catch on or catch fire until it becomes personal. That's what happened with me. And I know that's what happened with a lot of you. It really, it really didn't matter until one day Jesus became real to you and to me. And then it meant everything, right? It became personal to Peter that day. What an incredible day. And I wrote down some thoughts on that as I was just thinking about this amazing thing that happened. How many times do we go through the motions with little faith and even less expectation? When is the last time we really encountered Him in a life-changing, humbling way? Do we treat our relationship with Him with a yawn of indifference? Or do we live in awe and expectancy? Do we stop to think about our depravity before a holy God and marvel at His amazing grace? What is it that puts us on our knees? Notice in verse 10, Jesus said, do not fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Jesus didn't, didn't look at Peter and say, I knew, I knew you old stinky fisherman. I knew what was in your heart. You, you, I ought to go away from you. I ought to never talk to you again. He looked at him with grace and he said, don't be afraid. I love you. I'm going to ask you to come partner with me. It's going to be glorious. And it really, really was, wasn't it? Don't fear. I'm, going to, I'm not going to punish you. I'm going to partner with you to change the world. You'll be catching men. You'll have a higher, greater purpose than survival or success. Now just think with me. How many people, how many people are walking the streets of heaven today because of Peter, James, and John? Would you say thousands? Maybe even more than thousands? How many times do they pass by one another, and rejoice in the goodness and grace of God in His glory because they left their nets and followed after Him. Their obedience is still paying dividends. We're talking about them today. What would they have missed? Now, think about, use your imagination with me for just a minute. What would they have missed had they not had this encounter, had they not left their nets and followed Him? Just think about it. Uh, Peter steps into heaven and he's having a discussion with one of the other Christians uh, there that day. And the man says to Peter, hey, what did you do in your earthly life? Option number one, Peter, I caught fish and took care of my family. 
Well, you know, maybe he would have had a successful career in business, but he would have lost out on the greatest invitation. I like this answer better. I had a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ, and with His help, we changed the world forever, and the eternal dividends just keep rolling in. What's it going to be when you and I get to heaven? When somebody asks you, man or woman, what did you do with your earthly life? Are we just going to say, well, you know, I did my best to provide my family and be a good person? Or are we going to say, I had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ and I got to get in on some eternal things that helped change the world around me? What a difference that would make in our lives. I wonder when we get to heaven, how many eternal blessings we will have missed because of a lack of reverence and faith or because we were just too busy and distracted to join God in something that He wanted us to do. I want to share this story with you in closing. I thought it was a pretty neat story. It's by Dr. James Dobson. And I'll just share it with you. He says, When my daughter Danae was a teenager, she came home one day and said, Hey, Dad, there's a great new game out. I think you'll like it. It's called Monopoly. I just smiled, he said. We gathered the family together and set up the board. It didn't take the kids long to figure out that old dad had played this game before. I soon owned all the best properties, including Boardwalk and Park Place. I even had Baltic and Mediterranean. My kids were squirming, and I was loving every minute of it, he said. About midnight, I foreclosed <laughs> on the last property and did a little victory dance. My family was impressed. My family wasn't impressed, he said. They went to bed and made me put the game up. As I began putting all of my money back in the box, a very empty feeling came over me. Everything that I had accumulated was gone. The excitement over riches was just an illusion. And then it occurred to me, hey, this isn't just the game of Monopoly that's caught my attention. This is the game of life. You sweat and strain to get ahead, but then one day after a little chest pain or a wrong change of lanes on the freeway, the game ends. It all goes back in the box, and you leave this world just as naked as the day you came into it. I once saw a bumper sticker, he said, that proclaimed, He who dies with the most toys wins. That's wrong. It should say, He who dies with the most toys dies anyway. What do I want? A boat and some nets and some success and some security? Or do I want to go on a journey with the Master and have a life that has eternal significance? 